all my years of teaching, I don't think there has ever been a book that has struck me and had the impact on my life the way the book of Romans has. And I know that in studying the book of Romans, there are moments when you think, this is just hard stuff. This is just, you know, I have to kind of wade through some of this. And the first three chapters of Romans, probably especially, um, present a challenge. So you've gotten over your, after today, you've made it through one of the big challenges in the book of Romans, because you have made it through the three chapters that really Paul just does a lovely job of telling us all how depraved we are and how big our sin is. And aren't we all really glad about that, that he took the time to do that? But the truth is that we need to know that because we need to understand our position in relationship to the Lord. But we will move on today and move on from here. Not that you won't ever hear the word sin again in the rest of the book of Romans, but we will move on to things that will really help all of us to understand our salvation and God's plan more deeply and understand all of the good news about that plan. So last week, um, Lisa started us off with the end of chapter 2, beginning of 3, by using the theme of false advertising to explain the ways that the Jews were rationalizing their own sin, um, how we do that same thing, and how the actions and attitudes of any believer can sometimes be false advertising for those around them because it affects their perceptions of Jesus, of God, of what it really means to be a Christian. But the bottom line, if you will recall, to everything that Lisa said last week was that God's righteousness and faithfulness are unwavering even in the face. Did I say that right just then? His righteousness and faithfulness are unwavering even in the face of my unfaithfulness. He never changes. His plan never changes. So today... God's grace and faithfulness are going to be on display as we move through chapter 3. So I want to encourage you to um, get out your pen and, and your note area in your workbook and open your Bible if you want to. And um, we're going to watch and see how God moves and how Paul moves in his writing from the unrighteousness of all people to the solution that God prepared from the beginning of time for us. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you today for um, the gift of studying your word and being challenged by it. And now, Father, we just ask that um, the words that I speak, that the meditations of our heart for the next few minutes here will be pleasing and acceptable to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to ask you to think for a moment about the justice system in this country in which we live. You know, when somebody commits a crime, what do we expect? We expect that they're going to go through a certain process in order for justice to be brought about and things to be righted. So they are arrested, they are charged, they typically have a trial, they are sentenced, and they're given the consequences or the punishment of that. Sometimes there's an appeal 
and sometimes that works, but it doesn't always work. But what are we looking for as citizens of the United States when we know that someone has committed a crime? What do we long for in that scenario? We long for justice, don't we? Well, <clears throat> we want the punishment to fit the crime. I want you to hold that thought for just a few minutes here. As we start into chapter 9, in verse 9 in chapter 3, Paul's going to give us one last look at the sins of the Jews and the Gentiles and all of us. But what he told us in the earlier part of the chapter was that the Jews had an advantage, that they had the revelation of God, they had the word of God, and they were marked by him as their people by circumcision. This advantage that they have, I had an interesting experience that brought a little taste of this home to me when Jeff and I traveled to Israel. One of our tour guides was an Israeli archaeologist. And I was amazed throughout everywhere we visited, the understanding and the knowledge that this man had of scripture and of the history and significance of every place that he was showing us. And his knowledge was not just Old Testament knowledge, it was New Testament knowledge, it was the whole picture. And honestly, I have to tell you, as we listened to him day after day, I almost grew a little bit envious of this advantage that he had in the understanding of the scripture and the history because of where he had grown up, the study that he had done, the heritage of his family. But what Paul tells us in verse 9, even though this advantage existed, what Paul says is, does this make the Jews more valuable than anybody else? And his answer is, not at all. You see, because back in chapter 1 of Romans, what we learned was that the Gentiles sinned in many, many ways because they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But in that same chapter, what it told us was that the Jews had failed the Lord because they had rejected him and turned their back time and time again throughout generations. So what we learn from all of that is that we reach this point where it doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter what our background is, we all have the same sin-sick heart. So I want us to start in verses 9 through 18, and I'm going to read those, and then we're going to talk for just a minute about what this means, and then we're going to move on to something way more positive. So from 9 to 18, it says this, Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. That's a lovely picture. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. 
Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Now, so once again we're reminded we've all got this really big problem. But listen to what it says in verses 19 and 20. What it tells us is that the law was meant to be a mirror in our lives. It was meant to show us the sin problem that we have. So when we think about God's standards, about how righteous and holy he is, what we need to understand is I can never achieve that goal to be exactly like that. One scholar has said if sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. Now, my guess is that like me in these first three chapters, you have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's probably pointed a few things out to you that you need to take care of. And that's because when we are reminded of God's standards and when we are reminded of who we are in relation to him, we see ourselves more clearly. We know our need for repentance and forgiveness. Now, I want you to picture something with me. I want you to picture that you are standing before a judge. It's a judge who is known for taking crimes seriously. You're guilty of no small thing. You've committed a felony, which means that you can choose from burglary, auto theft, DUI, assault, disorderly conduct, murder, kidnapping, fraud, counterfeiting, or domestic violence, whatever one you like. Your guilt is completely clear. There is no evidence that does anything except convict you. There's no plea bargain. There's no chance for an acquittal or an appeal. The judge looks straight at you, scolds you, and sentences you to maximum punishment. Are you getting a little clench in your stomach here? The guards lead you away. You look back at your family in that courtroom and your friends and you want to go back. You want to change things. You want another opportunity, but it feels like it's all too late. When you get to where you'll be incarcerated, your cell is worse than you imagined. It is depressing and disgusting. You spend several nights there and you're feeling pretty hopeless. Now, something's going to happen in verse 21. There's two words that start that verse, and those two words are, but now. Something good is coming, because unbeknownst to you, someone has made an appeal on your behalf. And this is not just any someone. This is the only one who could make this right for you. And so one day you have a visitor, and he comes in and he tells you that he has made arrangements with the judge. He's going to take your punishment 
and serve your time. You are free to go. You can live your life. He instead will stay in that miserable barren cell while you return to comfort and the joy of living as a free person. He will also continue to experience for you all the consequences of being in that prison. Your record is wiped clean. The crime that should follow you for the rest of your life will be on his record. You get a new life, a fresh start. And in addition to this, any slip-ups that you have in the future will be added to his sentence and his record. What would you say? How long would it take you to say, I agree, yes, please do this for me? But just about that time it occurs to you, what's the catch? You're thinking, wait a minute, is there something that needs to be done in order for me to be given this privilege, this huge gift, this freedom that I do not deserve? And so you ask him that very question. What do I have to do? And his answer to you is that you simply have to believe that he is who he says he is, that he has the power to do exactly what he's describing for you because he's the son of God and he's died on the cross for you. He can take all that sin and shame, all that condemnation, all that punishment, and take it on himself for you. You just believe and accept this gift in faith. Would you step out in faith at that moment? My guess is that most of us would do that. I hope all of us would do that. The truth of the matter is, that is the exact plan God has put in place for every one of us sitting in this room this morning. And it's nowhere any clearer than in verses 21 to 26. Let's read those. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So what did those verses just tell us? We're all sinners. We've all failed. We're on our own. 
if we stay that way and we have no way to solve the problem. But now, he says, here's the good news. God has a plan. And this plan didn't just start the day Jesus came to earth. This plan started before the beginning of the world. At the time of creation, God knew exactly what we would be like and exactly what he would need to do to redeem us. And this salvation is a gift. It's not based on following laws or trying to achieve a standard, as Paul indicated here. Instead, it is based on his grace that we receive through our faith. Now, depending on the translation that you read and studied for this week, there were a lot of interesting words in this passage. Justified, propitiation, redemption. So what does it mean when our scriptures tell us that we have been justified? It means that we have been declared right before God, that he himself has made us right before him. And how is that possible? It's possible because Jesus Christ took all of our sin. And when he took all of our sin, God gave us the righteousness of Jesus. I love the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jot that verse down so you can stick it on your mirror or read it occasionally because it says this. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right through Christ. When I was a child, I learned that the phrase justified meant just as if I'd never sinned. Easy way to remember the meaning of the word. God is by nature righteous, holy, and good. And when we confess Jesus as our Savior, he gives us an amazing gift. He transforms us to a righteous standing where he sees us as good and holy before him. That is the perfect depiction of grace revealed. Now, we need to understand, though, exactly what Paul is saying right here, which is, you do not earn that. There's no price to be paid for this. There's no value that we're going to bring to this equation that makes us worthy of redemption. And what is our redemption? It's our deliverance. It's our rescue. And what is propitiation? It is the very act of Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, pays the price for us. Later in the book of Romans, Paul very directly says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved is simply another way of saying that you've received this gift of righteousness before God, that he promises to transform you in your present life, and he promises to save you eternally. Every other religion known to man is built on a similar premise. And that premise is that there is a way for us to work our way into a right relationship with God. But somehow, we have to come to terms with the fact that even though men have tried to create that as truth, that the truth is there is no value that you and I ever bring 
outside of the fact that we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Not enough following of rules like the Jews thought they could follow the law. So the bottom line is this. It doesn't depend on how good the Jews were. It doesn't depend on how much the Gentiles tried to follow the rules and achieve certain standards. It all depends on Jesus. And in believing in him, what we do is we leave behind the things that we have desired in the world, and we long more for the things of God. We take all of Christ, and we don't try to add anything to it. We just know that his work on our behalf is everything we need. Now, this plan was a little costly because of the sacrifice that Jesus had to make. And Paul tells us in verse 21 that the law and the prophets testify to all of this. They testify to the fact that Jesus would come and do this. There is a huge illustration for us in the pages of the Old Testament through the sacrificial system that was in place for the Jews. And if we can get our minds around what that sacrificial system really meant, then what we are able to do is put the truth of God's plan from the very beginning together with Paul's words in the book of Romans in the first century, and we begin to understand the whole truth that is prevalent throughout Scripture. There was a day of atonement that is described in Leviticus, the 16th chapter, if you want to note that. It was a very special and important day because it was the day every year when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, which was the most inner part of the temple, and he would go in there to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. Two young goats without blemish would be presented to the high priest. One of those was chosen as the sacrifice for the sins of the people. That one would be killed, and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was the gold cover on the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwelled. And this sacrifice temporarily met the righteous demands of God for the forgiveness of the Jews. Then the priest put his hands on the head of the other goat. He confessed the sins of the people. And then that little goat was taken out into the wilderness and set free. And why did that happen? It happened to symbolize the fact that that goat was carrying away the sins of the people. Now, our lamb, our sacrifice is not a live lamb or goat. Our sacrifice is the lamb of God. And we are told that that was the plan from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 says, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world, referring to Jesus. And in Psalm 103, 12, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Just like the picture that little goat painted as he was released out into the wilderness to carry away the sins of the Jewish people. Now, the sacrificial system 
was a covering until the time that Jesus came to provide a finished salvation. So that's why in verse 25, Paul writes that God held back the punishment for all those sins of the Jews and others who believed until Jesus came to be the one and only sacrifice. And then we know the true meaning of the word redemption because he rescued us. This, once again, is the embodiment of the theme of our course this year, ladies. This is God's grace revealed. Now, let's get to the final verdict for us. When we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, when we accept this appeal that has been so well crafted for us, we walk out of prison. We leave that awful cell behind us. We leave that hopelessness behind us. We are no longer captive to sin and shame. Why? Because we've been changed. We are new people. We are redeemed from our sin, and we receive the blessings of life with God. And so here's where we are now. For every one of us who is a believer, who claims Jesus Christ, as our Savior and Lord. In 2 Peter, Peter tells us exactly where we are. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says this. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Not part of what we need or almost everything we need, but everything we need for life and godliness. Through his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. Let's pray as we finish. Father, we thank you for um, this magnificent truth. And Lord, though some of us know the gospel of Jesus so well, um, Father, we just thank you that there is always a need in our hearts for us to be reminded of the perfect, complete plan that you had in place. Help us to have that ingrained in us today, Lord, and to remember that there's no standard that we meet. It is all about the work that Jesus Christ has done for each of us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.